Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Lair, who is an Associate Professor of Physical Therapy at Messiah University, researcher and friend and mentor to myself. Dr. Lair has done some awesome research on elite level field hockey athletes. I'm talking the U.S. national field hockey team. And today we're going to be discussing that research. So what he saw from a movement deficit standpoint in elite field hockey athletes, and what our next steps would have been from an intervention standpoint. What exercises would we have looked for, what we would have done, and so on. So this is a great episode for any sports PT or any field hockey coach, athlete, trainer, anyone who works with field hockey athletes that wants to understand more about the sports and the movement deficits that are commonly associated in elite athletes. Enjoy this episode. Dr. Lair, welcome back to the podcast. It's always an honor to be working with you. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thanks, Dan. Same here. So for people who maybe they didn't catch that first episode we did on that 37-1 and 24 story that you shared a year ago, would you mind just kind of giving them a quick refresher of who you are and all the amazing things that you've done? Well, actually, let's start out with the least uh, th- the, the least thing I like to do is talk about myself, but I'll make this short <laughs> for you, Dan. Um, yeah, Mike Lair, Associate Professor at Messiah University um, at, in their DPT program. I teach human movement, therapeutic exercise principles, foundational principles. And probably the nature of, of this is just my movement center approach with uh, research over the years. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You've definitely been a movement first kind of guy. And while I think a lot of what you've been known for is at the ankle, uh, that's not to say that you don't look at other things, too. You're certainly a preacher of the regional interdependence uh, approach to assessment, I feel. Yeah, and I have to give kudos to Rob Wainer way back, I think in 2007, when he first introduced that model. Um, I would say since then, probably over the last decade, it started with injury risk. And that that's kudos to Phil Plisky on that, as far as my mentorship uh, or his mentorship to me at that point. Then it went into manual therapy. And then since that time, it's actually merged. Uh, those two have recently merged where we're looking at the specifics of foot and ankle. And certainly dorsiflexion is a key cornerstone of most of my uh, research over the last three years. Yeah, yeah. I actually referred to you as Dr. Dorsey Flexion to someone earlier today. Um, I stand behind it at, at this point, too. So make <laughs> things simple. Right. And as you've mentioned, you've, you've uh, certainly worked with a number of amazing individuals, and you've done a lot of cool research and studies on human movement in general. And one of the most uh, interesting ones that you've published, I found, was the article that you did assessing the U.S. Women's National Field Hockey Team. You looked at a lot of their different movement factors and movement <clears throat> compensations. Would you mind just kind of giving us a quick rundown of what that study was and what you were looking at and trying to assess there? Sure. Um, well, this was basically uh, based off of their 2016 roster uh, for the Olympic field hockey team. At that time, they were training down in Spooky Nook. And a, a clinician that, uh, by the name of William Cheek, basically from Lancaster, he was overseeing some of their rehab and human performance and in- interacting with the human performance director. And he contacted me basically with some questions regarding some movement-centered approaches, the wide balance test, and that sort of evolved into this study. So naturally, I wanted to leverage this opportunity to get the most out of it. And at that time, I was leading a research 
uh, a group of research students and really they were the it's just top students uh, within that class at that point. Um, actually, very similar to, to you, Dan. So I, I looked at that caliber of students and said, we can do more with this. So with this, um, with that said, basically, they did a lit review specifically on field hockey and a movement centered approach and and build off of some of the FMS studies, white balance studies and uh, SFMA at that time, which was uh, growing in popularity. So with that, um, and certainly closed chain dorsiflexion is in that uh, realm. Also at that time, um, really there's with uh, thanks to the work of Pl uh, Plisky and Kiesel, we do have the move perform software that we actually had access to at the university or at the uh, Lebanon Valley College. So we were actually able to take that data, then plug it in right to the move, move to perform uh, software and generate a general appraisal of injury risk for individually and also as a team. So at that point, um, we basically let we basically the students and myself, along with um, uh, Bill Cheeks, and then also we uh, brought along Dr. Stan Dachau based on his uh, just research acumen, which, and he was a tremendous help in the, in the study, um, wrote up a proposal for the IRB and LBC, got that submitted. Uh, at that point, we were ready to run data collections on that uh, team at that point, And we ended up with uh, nine total subjects. Awesome. So you were able to look at nine different individuals on the Olympic roster for the uh, U.S. field hockey team at the time. And you mentioned that you did a lot of different functional movement type testing. So everything was based on you mentioned the FMS battery or was it the SMF battery or which uh, which approach did you use to assessment there? Yeah, and an excellent question, and and that's really the the key of this, right? Um, so we were able to basically use a station format with the nine uh, with the nine uh, athletes, and basically, um, uh, Bill ran the FMS station. We had the students run the Y balance stations and closed chain dorsiflexion stations, and I took on the SFMA component to that, um, just in terms of reliability and standardization for the methodology. So you kind of looked at all of the different movements then, right? Because FMS is a nice kind of basic look at something like an overhead squat pattern or mm -hmm. like a standing twist test. Uh, whereas the SFMA, I love how they incorporate the use of the rolling. So prone to supine or supine to prone to assess more of a dissociation between the shoulder and the hip through rotation, which for a sport like field hockey, that rotation ability is pretty crucial, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. You hit it on the on the head. So the initial screen included just looking at the criteria and applying the criteria of the FMS, then followed by um, basically looking at those thresholds for closed chain dorsiflexion 35 degrees um, or lower as being the, you know, at least the, the bare minimum in terms of uh, injury risk at that point, mainly for ankles. And that was based on a previous article, I think hoping with some of the military um, military personnel so that's my uh, research geeked out moment for the <laughs> for your podcast but uh but then we looked at why uh, certainly composite scores why balance asymmetries with that and then uh, with the SFMA we looked at the uh, top tier movements and then I actually broke out those movements so uh, that were uh, dysfunctional and non-painful and then we did look at rolling uh, in the, in, with that as well. So we were able to actually break it down. And really the way I like to look at this, and and this is something which I learned from my mentors, such as, you know, with Gray, Lee, and Kyle, and, and Phil, they're 
basically sort of break these up, look at the patterns and then break down those patterns into key parts. So the, the one thing that really um, came out with the results, which was uh, pretty fascinating is looking at you know, basically 100%. So nine out of nine athletes actually demonstrate extension um, movement dysfunction. Uh, that was basically non-painful. Interesting. 89%. By, by, dysfunction, yeah, by dysfunction, do you mean just <clears throat> limited motion or like inability to maintain spinal extension from a strength standpoint? Or what was the main like deficit as associated with extension? Yeah, great, great question. So at that point, you're looking at that gross movement pattern. And there we just apply the qualitative criteria from the SFMA with that. So, uh, you know, with those specific criteria, you're looking at, do you get um, it basically the anterior, uh, um, basically hip shift at that point? And how, what does the low back look like? Because it increased the lordosis at that point. And then you're looking at where the scapula falls relative to the calcaneus. Um, so those are the main ones. And then certainly looking at just these uh, uniform curves of the spine. Do you get, it, are you seeing that extension in uh, thoracal lumbar area? Or do you see it more specifically at one segment? So at that point, without giving specifics, maybe pr proprietary information with the SMA on each uh, qualitative criteria, we apply those with each, each one of those movements. Gotcha, gotcha. So you looked at the extension and then you're in the middle of saying that 80, I think 87 or 89 percent of athletes had a dysfunctional single leg pattern as yeah. well. So it, extension actually floored me and surprised me most. But then this was another thing that surprised me. So that the, we did frequency distributions on this data. And then we found that basically 100 percent had that dysfunction, dysfunctional extension pattern. But then we saw 89 percent had a dysfunctional single leg stance. So you're imagine at this, this level of Olympic field hockey players, and that was tested simply static stance, hips flexed to 90, eyes open, then eyes closed. So at that point, we saw most of that um, basically uh, deficit dysfunction. Again, this was non-painful, um, basically when, specifically when they closed their eyes, okay? So, um, so that was something. And then the third was basically for the squat. So those were the top three dysfunctional patterns at that point in the squad had a frequency distribution of 77%. So we had 100%, 89%, 77% looking at those key things. And really, it was so surprising to me. It's just that the fundamental nature of these uh, movement uh, requirements and just uh, what we were seeing in those athletes. Yeah, definitely. Because a lot of those motions, especially just simple body weight squat, I'm sure that the majority of the athletes that play field hockey and are part of some formal strength and conditioning program are doing some type of loaded squat on a regular basis. So the fact that they're displaying movement compensations without the load even uh, is certainly interesting. Was there any specific deficit uh, that you noted within the squat that made it dysfunctional? Like, were you seeing more of a lateral shift or were you seeing more of like a butt wink sign or what specifically, if you can share that, were you seeing yeah. there? Yeah, great, great question. So basically what we did was, again, we just applied the qualitative criteria for the squat with the SFA. Mm -hmm. We're looking femurs parallel at that point. 
we're looking at do we see that uh, lumbar flexion with some th uh, thracolumbar thoracic extension with it. So um, basically there we're, we're looking at no presence of any kind of valgus uh, collapse at the knees and no uh, presence of an asymmetrical weight shift. So those are the those are the key things. And now with that, we basically then, okay, at that point, we only know that they have a dysfunctional squat according to that criteria. So we really can't, we do really don't know why. So that's one of the benefits of really uh, that I found just using that SFMA system where you systematically break those things down. And at that point, certainly from the research we've done at, uh, you know, LVC before we, we, do see a, a strong correlation between closed chain dorsiflexion uh, range and squats. Now with this, we um, the way this statistic sort of bared out with just frequency distribution, and again, that's all we um, did at that time, basically here are the impairments that really um, came out. And you, you, you sort of hit it on the head right away. So we saw anterior hip mobility being a key, um, basically a key impairment and theme across uh, these athletes. So at that point, we're looking at 56% of those demonstrated some kind of anterior hip mobility uh, at that point. Now with that, could it be due to an anterior hip capsule or tightness or muscle tone or uh, any kind of potential, uh, you know, iliopsoas from the Thomas test. So basically between Faber test and iliopsoas or Thomas test and Faber test, there were, we were able to identify anterior hip mobility uh, deficits in terms of frequency. And there we saw 56%. So that certainly could uh, could impact any of the top three uh, patterns at that point. Now, in addition, you mentioned that the top one, um, you, you mentioned this already, and that was the core and rolling motor control assessment. So there we looked at supine to prone, upper and lower extremity initiated right versus left and repeated. Uh, prone to supine. So uh, at that point, that was the highest frequency of uh, basically dysfunction. And that was 78% across the board. So you mentioned before, in terms of transverse uh, plane mobility and just uh, functionality as it relates to field hockey and other sports, just life in general, that is a, that is a key fundamental um, movement that basically we incorporated into the uh, protocol. And I believe there was a... Um, an article that was just uh, looked at rolling revisited. And that's uh, with the, uh, I believe the international uh, journal of sports medicine with, uh, I think the public, uh, basically the author was Barbara Huggenboom and Mike Voigt as well. So they're really doing good work and expanded on the original article. So I think you're going to see this more certainly, but that was at the 78%. And, um, and the last but not least, and then I think you, you probably have another question, but the was thoracic mobility. So there, thoracic mobility, we actually saw um, 30, 33%. So a third of those demonstrated either right or left, um, basically right or left thoracic uh, mobility issues. Right, right, through extension and rotation. And I believe that the thoracic mobility issues always presented with someone who had the anterior hip mobility deficits that you uh, mentioned earlier, which I kind of found interesting because normally we think of the hips and we kind of think of like lumbopelvic hip complex as one thing, 
whereas the thoracic spine is something completely different by our old line of thinking. And now we're saying, hey, look, we have anterior hip deficits and we're seeing compensations or a correlation of uh, compensations in other regions like the thoracic spine through extension and rotation as well. Absolutely. So there you are seeing where if you do have a mobility deficit, we are seeing impairments in the other adjacent regions, which sort of links the uh, regional independence model. And certainly it goes back to uh, Gray basically always preaching more than teaching with this uh, mantra where uh, the body will always sacrifice quality of movement for quantity with that. So at that point, I just found, you know, there is a certainly connection at the thoracolumbar hip complex, especially when it looks at the demands in terms of the transverse plane movement requirements with sports. So this, you know, I could see um, applying the same protocol um, to the overhead athlete. Definitely. Tennis players, golf players, you know, golfers, those the and those kind of things where you're uh, in baseball, softball. So, um, you know, the one thing I, I always look at in terms of motor control, you mentioned it earlier, where we're really leaning away. And this is from a person who has a, a fellowship in manual therapy and who was brought up with a biomechanical model sort of entrenched and and now we're we're seeing and fortunately we're seeing that uh, evolution of that model certainly we can uh thank joel belosky for that that we know there's more things going on with manual therapy than particularly just uh you know biomechanics rolling and gliding it's a central nervous issue and certainly with the uh, uh trend towards motor control we look at it's a it's a total uh total body issue but at that point also, and some athletes can be good compensators without increasing load on in some areas, and then other ones uh, can be overpowered and actually, you know, is a detriment to themselves and uh, increased risk for future injury, which really goes down to, and one thing I, I didn't get a chance to mention is, so we put all this data in um, and we put it into move perform uh, software algorithm. So that's an evidence-based algorithm. And again, there's some proprietary information, which I will uh, respect. But at that point, uh, it, there you're able to put that data in, and then it uh, stratifies that injury risk based on four categories. Substantial risk, which is the red light. Nobody wants to be in there. Optimal risk, which is ideal. And then there's two other ones, moderate risk and slight. So at this point, uh, we're, you know, fortunately, nobody um, fell in the substantial risk category. Okay. Um, but nobody f fell in the optimal risk category either. So that, that left, uh, uh, four out of nine or 49% in the moderate risk category. And then, uh, basically the other, uh, 54% in the slight, uh, injury risk. So we've uh, handed this information over to the human performance director to basically to consider and inform future training practices. Gotcha. So did you um, follow up with them at all in the future about, you know, the outcomes uh, or was this like a predictive validity kind of assessment where, you know, you looked at these movements and later followed up and said, hey, you know, the ones that were at a higher risk actually did get hurt and here's what happened or... Yeah. So at that point, it, with this study, just the methodology, this was a descriptive observational cohort. So basically, we went in one day to look at this data at that point, but there was no um, regressional model or follow up at that point. And certainly, we have to accept this was one of the limitations of the study, too. And it would have been nice if we were able to have that extra um, you know, component where we look down the road, what injuries were um, 
you know, sustained in those individuals and at what time to make some kind of potential uh, link or association with that. But that was not part of a methodology. But that would have been great to sort of move uh, move the discussion forward. I agree. Definitely. And on that point for a second there, in your experience in your, what, 20 to 30 years in physical therapy, I mean, you've been a physical therapist for about as long as I've been alive, Dr. Lair. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> um, what kind You're of- You're muted. Uh, You're muted. I can't hear you. <laughs> what, no, what, kind of, uh, what kind of trends, patterns have you seen in field hockey athletes across the years there? Has there been any like one injury or one common complaint that you see more than others? Yeah. And I, I could say just full uh, transparency, I have not dealt with a lot of Olympic field hockey athletes. I mean, this was actually a learning experience for me. And I got to thank uh, Bill Cheeks for sort of in the, informing me of that. They did have an injury tracking system and um, he they did provide an injury, uh, basically some injury data to me prior to that, um, prior to the, you know, the lit review and the end of the project. Um, the one big one that really came out was certainly low back and hamstring. Mm-hmm. Um, you do have some of the ankle sprains uh, basically here and there, but that is one thing that really came out. And then ironically, it's just iliopsoas tendinopathy. So you saw a lot at the lumbar pelvic hip girdle that um, in terms of, uh, you know, some tendinopathy strains and these potential non-contact injuries, which I really honed in on, uh, just to try to identify some of these intrinsic modifiable risk, risk factors with the, um, basically with the exam. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there was even um, another study, you mentioned the hamstring. I think there was another study by Braun in 2015, of all people, um, that kind of compared like a sport like field hockey to a sport like lacrosse and looking at knee injuries specifically. Um, You know, like you, I haven't necessarily worked with the Olympic field hockey team, um, you know, through and through at this point in my career. But um, I have seen a number of high school and college field hockey players, and I continue to notice a lot of like lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction. And I have seen some of that foot ankle stuff that you've mentioned. But a lot of times I've noticed that they'll come to me complaining of new knee pain, when in reality, the knee is not the main issue for them. It's issues up the chain or below the chain instead of something directly at the knee. Yeah, great point. And there is a there is a neuromuscular sort of thought process um, that could lend itself to some of the you know clinical reasoning of why that is. And we can start with basically there's um, two particular articles of interest that uh, that emerged from the lit review, which I really love. Um, the first one was Fenity in 1992, which was I was in high school and I don't want to know where, where you were, Dan. But um, <laughs> no, I was actually in college. I was in high school. So that was that isn't that bad. But uh, they're r- reported just with the flexed, uh, continuous flex posture with that. And they looked at how you can run in that flex posture with the ball. That ball has to be almost between uh, your base of support for you to maintain your balance. Now, um, so at that point, now when you run without the ball, you're more upright. So then it's going to create more uh, demand on your iliopsoas. So the one thing that certainly came out with the extension and anterior hip mobility seems to be if there there is sort of, and I hate to say one missing link, but the one common theme would be that iliopsoas muscle. And particularly right. that led to the, uh, uh, let me see, K-A-W-A-L-E-K, Kalolek 
in 2013. It was basically a study with a, a Polish field hockey team where they looked at hypertonicity of key muscle groups. And they uh, looked at Thomas stretch and uh, identified the ileus psoas as, a, as one key muscle that was impacted. So basically on there, if you have a, you know, based on some traditional models from, from Yonda, um, and I don't think you've met with me until at all until I've actually said Yonda. So might as well insert it here, Dan. But when you have a tight or hypertonic iliopsoas, you can, in, uh, which is over facilitated, you could inhibit the antagonist mus musculature, which would be uh, gluteus medius and maximus. And if they control that femur and that valgus alignment, it could throw off patellar tracking, stress the uh, knee structures down the chain. So that's sort of where I'm at in turn trying to understand that uh, at that point. But that's what I got for now. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And it's interesting you bring that up. The uh, Yonda model and the overall hip flexor approach is I, I feel like there's been a lot of people who come to me and they'll complain about the hypertonic or the tightness of their hip flexors. And there's times when they truly are tight muscles and you really can't get any extension motion. And, you know, the, I, I like to do a objective strength testing measurement on that. So we use a Tindex system here. And a lot of times they'll have stronger hip flexion than hip extension, which matches perfectly to what you just said of we have a overpowered muscle group inhibiting another one. There's there's always that one or two times, though, and it doesn't happen often, but every now and then someone will complain about a muscle being tight when in reality it's very, very weak and they have plenty of length and mobility. And the hip flexors are one that I've actually seen that occur with where you've got trainers and strength coaches and even athletic coaches who have been almost conditioned in a way to stretch the hip flexors because they're always tight. And while the majority of the time that's correct. There's always that one or two cases where they actually have plenty of length, but there is minimal to no strength of it. And I find, at least from my experience, that sometimes that muscular tightness complaint can actually be more of a guarding response or a guarding mechanism in someone who doesn't have enough uh, stability to match the amount of mobility that they have. Absolutely. And that's an excellent point because I, I actually experienced the same thing with the patient populations where you you feel that tightness, the palpation, you have some tender points, but then Thomas tests and some of the muscle length tests um, just really don't, uh, you know, reveal that like you expected. So there I'm looking at, is there, is it more of a muscle length stretch weakness to, to a degree or lengthen weakness where it's so, so long to a point where maybe from a length tension relationship, it's not optimal uh, at that point. So yes, absolutely. That's, that makes sense to me. Now, you've also done a great deal of work in the past on injury prevention program development, especially with exercise and correctives and that sort of thing. So taking the data that you had from the field hockey article uh, where you saw things like limited spinal extension or dysfunctional single leg stance patterns or dysfunctional squat patterns, if you had to take that group and you had to implement a corrective exercise program with them, what kind of exercises or interventions, what kind of things would you be looking at for you know field hockey specific athletes based on what you saw in that article? Sure. And glad you're not putting me on the spot or anything at this point. <laughs> right. I, I always yeah. do that, right? No, they, you know, this is a, this is a great question. Okay. So based on what I would do now, um, based on the research and the reality is I, I've never hit 
uh, field hockey ball or been in that stance. So, you know, um, this is what I would say from a neuromuscular, uh, neuromuscular skeletal standpoint. I will look at the regions, one for thoracic. So thoracic, uh, certainly thoracic region, I would make sure they have the mobility in terms of right versus left and uh, as, as symmetrically as possible for that. Now, there is some data in some systems that suggest 50 degrees of thoracic rotation, uh, specifically in that region is ideal. And I think they've applied that to uh, golfers. And I would stick with that. So first off, I would go to thoracic mobility. One, that's my bias. Um, because I'm a manual therapist. So I li hope, like to think manual therapy still has a, uh, you know, advantage. And I would say that thoracic region would be a manual therapist dream in most of these athletes. Well, yeah, now, you just get to punch their ticket to thoracic park, right? <laughs> something, something like that. Yes. Um, also, then I take my manual therapy skills to uh, basically to the hip. Um, I would I would want to rule out any kind of uh, particular anterior hip joint restrictions. And if so, I would attempt some mobilizations, manipulations, and some uh, soft tissue work there. Um, I get out instruments and I've, I'm a big advocate of dry needling, even though we can't, you know, not necessarily doing it in uh, PA based on some, uh, you know, based on some uh, restrictions with the Practice Act. But then I do instrument assisted soft tissue if needed to detonify. And that's, I think I just made that up. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I like yeah, it. Illy so as but uh but yeah I basically look at those key uh, key things and if it's truly you know if it's truly uh tight or hyper hypertonic I try to normalize that or re reduce some of that uh, neural activity in that muscle and then I'd really go after uh, the hip in particular um, I would make sure um, some corrective exercise single leg uh, or basically single leg bridging uh, big fan of bridging and just how you can lock out that lumbar um, at that point, avoid that hyperextension, which you see in so many of these athletes. So I do that single, uh, single leg uh, bridge where you actually bring that a contralateral knee to the chest, and then you're bridging with that. Um, plus, I'm, I like that in terms of their hamstring uh, injury data as well. So there you basically hopefully you're taking out the hamstring at least to some degree where you're making that uh, basically actively insufficient based on traditional biomechanical models. And now you're relying on the primary mover of the hip, which is the glute. That just seems like it makes a lot of sense to me um, with that. And then certainly core and rolling, um, you know, getting into looking at those transverse plane patterns and getting their uh, basically rolling back in a good functional way, particular prone versus supine, um, and that could be upper extremity or lower extremity initiated because at that point, looking at those patterns, I think you really get an appreciation of, um, of moving just in an unloaded, uh, position in a primitive pattern. So that's where I probably, uh, start. Um, and at that point, certainly in the presence of closed chain dorsiflexion restriction, I'd be very careful with some of these, uh, loaded squat positions. I'll be very careful about some of, you know, some of these plyometric activities in that presence, because then you could potentially um, compensate and compensate by mo most likely pronation at the mid-tarsal joint. So then you get into some of those tendinopathy issues, such as posterior tibialis dysfunction, Achilles, plantar fasciitis, which we did see those uh, uh, in an uptick with some of the um, injury data. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad you brought up the point about compensations at the midfoot or other joints of the foot and ankle, because that's one thing I've noticed a lot for myself across the board with athletes is sometimes they'll show you great closed chain dorsiflexion motion. But when you lock them into more of a neutral position, I usually hold them in like a subtalar neutral and try to prevent any side to side motion at the foot. All of a sudden, they're dorsiflexion actually kind of sucks um a lot of people will compensate with other patterns like the pronation in order to make up for the lack of dorsiflexion Um, so i'm glad you brought that up absolutely absolutely and we actually based on what you just said we saw the you know the same the same kind of thing so in a future study i sort of wised up a little bit i'm learning even my old age here where (laughs) we wanted to uh, thanks to the help of stephen petneo from temple school of podiatric medicine he was able to uh, give us a medial longitudinal wedge so what we're able to put in to actually support that um joint so you're isolating more of the talocoral joint so uh we did that in my dissertation and i'm looking to finally get that into some kind of peer review submission just over the next uh uh, four to six months so that's my timeline there but absolutely so one way to do that if you don't have that wedge you could um you could basically instruct that patient to bring that knee uh basically keep that lateral to the second toe as well so that's one way. If you see that knee collapsing in the first MTP or medial to the first MTP, you look at the medial longitudinal arch and, and that navicular, it's most likely, in a, a, you know, uh, it's not cavus at that point. You could be pronating. So those are some of the instructions you could uh, use to um, to implement during that closed chain procedure. And, and what we see from the clinical practice guidelines and the, and the research, really open chain assessment of dorsiflexion has been shown to be unreliable. And we got a question of validity there. Um, and it's there, I would say, where you're looking at weight-bearing lunge testing, there you're seeing much more validity. You're seeing the reliability in the realm where this is a good, uh, these are good ways to look at uh, this kind of construct. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, I heard you mention a number of great interventions there from rolling to bridging. And one that I'm kind of surprised you didn't bring up actually was was the chop and lift and the clamshell. Yeah, I would say uh, definitely clamshells. And, you know, we can't get off this podcast uh, without saying PNF chop and lift. But they're, (laughs) you know, basically, um, you know, that's where I would I would go with that. I mean, certainly with the, you know, clamshells, good for isolation and and really a good uh, injury prevention program would be something that addresses the key parts. Right. But then also addresses the key patterns. So that's where you get the neuromuscular re-ed. So once you get into these tall kneeling, half kneeling, PNF chop and lifts, and then um, more functional patterns, uh, basically in closed chain environments, or you're using the whole body system. So I would look at, I just love the idea of, uh, you know, progression with that. And um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the chop and lift. And I mean, next thing you know, we we forgot the serratus posterior muscle and its role in all these field hockey things. So we'll have to get that one next time, I guess. Dare to dream. <laughs> Dr. Lewis, we start to wrap up here. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing remarks, or anything that we might have missed on the topic of field hockey? No, not at all. Just want to appreciate it, uh, appreciate your time, the good work you're doing in terms of blending and fusing sort of PT sports medicine with uh, uh, basically interprofessional education and human performance. Certainly, the more professionals and different disciplines perspectives are talking about 
serving the most important person. That's the, the athlete. I think we move the science forward. Definitely. Definitely. Always appreciate uh, your kind words and really appreciate your time, Dr. Lair. I know it's hard to come by and uh, looking forward to catching up again with you very soon. Thank you again. Okay. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Broad Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.